My Favorite Theorem, a math podcast with no quiz at the end. I'm Kevin Knudsen, professor of mathematics at the University of Florida, and I am joined by your other co-host person. Hi, I am Evelyn Lamb, a freelance math and science writer in Salt Lake City, Utah. And I was actually thinking we should have a quiz at the end of this one. We really should. It's just so jam-packed. There's going to be so many different things floating around. So, like, be prepared. Actually, don't, because we haven't prepared a quiz for you. So no, we don't haven't. want maybe, you to be maybe, disappointed. Okay, I'll, um, I'll start writing the quiz now. All right. Uh, yeah, today, yeah. today we have an interesting uh, new experiment that we're going to that we're going to try. So, uh, Mike Krebs from uh, Cal State University in Los Angeles reached out to us uh, with an idea. Mike, why don't you introduce yourself and explain? Um, hi, uh, my name's Mike Krebs. Uh, I'm a professor of mathematics at California State University, Los Angeles. Um, yeah, no, uh, graduation is tomorrow, and I think our students have had enough of quizzes, so thank you for passing on the <laughs> quiz. Uh, yeah, I uh, well, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and my origin story of finding your podcast is sometimes to find a new one, I will go to Wikipedia and click the random article button. And then whatever comes up, search to find a podcast on that. Okay. I found various things that way, like uh, the story of Sylvia Viner, a uh, uh, octogenarian marathon runner, and uh, so on and so forth. And then one time, I clicked random article, and up came a page on differential geometry of surfaces. Okay. And one Google search later, I started screaming at my laptop, there's a podcast called My Favorite Theorem. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I discovered that at the time I was teaching a uh, this past semester, a, a capstone course for our math majors uh, in which uh, students select a topic and then have to write about it and present about it. And I said, oh, I wonder if the, the good folks at My Favorite Theorem would be interested in uh, uh, doing something like that with students. So I recruited uh, some students from that class as well as a bunch of other students from our university. And uh, here we are now. All right. Yeah, this, that's amazing. And so you are mostly graduating seniors about to graduate and you are spending the morning before your graduation with us. <laughs> I feel so honored. I really do. This is something else. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get to it. Okay, um, so, our... so yeah, we have nine students, right? Yeah. And, and so as Mike pointed out, there are nine factorial or 362,880 possibilities here. And we have chosen one of those orders. Yes. We, you know, if you so choose, you can always divide this into tracks and listen to them in every possible order and then get back to us and tell us what the optimal order would have been. But for now, it's the order in which they appeared on my Zoom screen. That's right. Um, so our, our first guest today is Pablo Martinez Gutierrez. Great to have you. Would you like to say a little bit about yourself and let us know your favorite theorem? Hi, thank you for having me on the on the show. Um, yes, I'm Pablo. I'm currently a math undergraduate at Cal State LA, hoping to complete my bachelor's, uh, not this semester, but hopefully next fall, next semester. And my favorite theorem that I'm covering for today is Euler's uh, formula and Euler's identity. Mm -hmm. It's something that I got exposed to back in Professor Krebs's class when I took his class in, for differential equations. He was teaching us about second order linear uh, differential, homogeneous differential equations. Mm -hmm. And in one class uh, session, 
he introduced the topic of Euler's formula and identity as like a side gem. And I was like, oh my goodness, this thing is so incredibly beautiful. Mm -hmm. The way that I learned it in his class was he introduced the mathematical expression e to the x as a Taylor series, mm -hmm. and he spanned it out as a series. And then when plugging in e to the power of i times x, then you span out that series. And because of the i, something interesting happens that where it starts to be, you could split it up into two individual uh, or, two, or two smaller series, mm -hmm. so to speak, of cosine and i sine x. So you would have the expression e to the power of i x equal to cosine x plus i sine x. Mm -hmm. And that to me, just seeing that formula was like I was gobsmacked. It was just baffling. It was yeah. incredible. Because yeah, then you're seeing. Yeah, everything just falls out after that. Right. Yeah. You're seeing all these like um, terms that come from math. You have E that comes from compounded interest. Back when you're learning about it in like algebra, you have sine and cosine that are coming in from uh, like the unit circle and trig. And then you have I from complex numbers. And so all those just coming in together is is like mind boggling, right? And then if that wasn't amazing in and of itself, something interesting and amazing, even more amazing happens when you plug in pi for X. Right. So you have E to the power of I times pi is equal to cosine pi plus I sine pi. And so the cosine pi just becomes negative one and the I sine pi becomes zero, which just goes away. So then you have e to the power of i times pi equal to negative one. Mm -hmm. And then if you add one to both sides, you get e to the power of pi i plus one is equal to zero. And that's just like when I saw it, I was like in awe. And I was just um, yep. like, how are things? How, how do these things align and assemble so beautifully and neatly? Mm -hmm. and concisely it doesn't seem like it seems crazy that it would happen that way i yep. have an unpop or possibly controversial opinion about this which is it's cooler to leave it with the minus one on the other side mm. instead of doing the plus one equals zero you know, don't cancel me for my, my <laughs> controversial euler formula takes but you know my i just gotta put that out there my favorite part about <laughs> complex exponentials like this is that you can forget all of those sum formulas right like if you want to know e if you want to know the cosine of three theta you just use the complex exponential it makes your life so much simpler so that, that's my fun thing. Okay, this is a really beautiful fact. Uh, so, so what have you chosen to pair with this fact? So my pairing for this formula and identity is this, I don't know if anyone's seen um, the Stephen Hawking's movie, Theory of Everything. Mm -hmm. The ending scene of that movie has this musical score that I, I, I like to listen to that evokes a similar feeling of elegance and beauty and awe about the universe. Mm. Uh, which is the same feeling I get from this identity and formula. It's called The Arrival of the Birds by the Cinematic Orchestra and the London Metropolitan Orchestra. Mm. You can give a listen on YouTube and, and, it, and you, as you listen to it, you'll, it elicits that feeling of awe. 
Yeah, okay. listen to it while you do some complex integrals, maybe. <laughs> I like yeah. it. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Yes. Well, the bar has been set high, but okay. yep. we will see if... No, <laughs> I'm not going to pit anyone against each other. Yeah, yeah, our, okay, next, yeah. our next yep. guest is Holly Kim. So, yes, Holly, if you'd like to tell us about yourself and tell us your favorite theorem. Hi, um, so my name is Holly, and um, I'm currently a grad student at Cal State Los Angeles, um, and uh, I'm not graduating this semester, so I still have about like a year or a year and a half before I graduate, but I'm happy to be here. So thank you for having me on the show as well. Absolutely. My favorite theorem is currently Orr's theorem from graph theory, um, which okay. states that uh, for a given graph that's simple and finite, um, and for two vertices that are distinct and non-adjacent, um, the sum of those, if the sum of those two vertices, the degree of those two vertices, um, is greater than or equal to the total number of vertices of your graph, then the graph is Hamiltonian, meaning you can find a Hamiltonian cycle, meaning you can find a spanning cycle that reaches every vertex um, once in, in the graph. So um, that one is um, my favorite. And it's interesting because um, I was not a math person um, when I got my bachelor's. So when I took my first proof-based mm -hmm. course, um, the professor quickly mentioned Hamiltonian graphs. And I had not seen graph theory, I think in that form at least um, mm -hmm. ever. So it was like really interesting at that time. And um, he had made a joke about like, it's not the Hamilton that they made the musical about. Um, and around that time, I thought that was so funny because I was also listening to Hamilton the musical uh, or had started listening to it, even though it's been out for a while uh, by, the, by the time I'd taken that course. Uh, but it just sort of stuck with me. And I thought Hamiltonian graphs were, um, and Hamilton the musical, they just sort of like, uh, every time I thought about it, um, I thought, oh, how fun and how interesting and how funny Hamiltonian graphs are. Mm -hmm. And then what makes them even more interesting is that unlike Eulerian graphs, where you can tell a graph is Eulerian um, um, quickly by looking at the, um, you know, it's if and only if every vertex has an even degree. Mm -hmm. um, so then you go, that graph is definitely Eulerian. Uh, but Hamiltonian graphs don't have sort of a defining characteristic um, um, like like Eulerian graphs. So Hamiltonian graphs are sort of like elusive, like, like there are some theorems that will work for certain families or types of graphs, but nothing that quite, I think, um, captures like, yes, for sure, every graph or like this graph is Hamiltonian if and only if um, these conditions are satisfied. So it's not been um, discovered or found out yet. So that's my current favorite theorem. So I, yes. don't, I don't know this theorem. So this is sort of interesting, right? So it's, it basically says that if you have two vertices in the graph that have enough edges out of them, basically, you're, you're guaranteed a Hamiltonian cycle. That's just, that's pretty remarkable, actually. Yeah, it's, yeah. and like the proof has like a funny, um, as you, it's like a proof by contradiction, but like there are certain edges, like you cannot have, as you construct this proof, otherwise you will yeah end up having a hamiltonian cycle so it's like you gotta have like just enough but not too many and or where you actually end up with another like a hamiltonian cycle kind of embedded in in your graph and mm -hmm. so um mm -hmm. yeah it's, it's very it's fun the converse is of course not true you, you can um the, the other direction would not um sure. not work so sure. so yeah 
very cool. Yeah, I'm I'm sitting here trying to doodle myself a graph and see, but I yeah. I think I think I need to doodle a bigger graph because <laughs> <laughs> there weren't enough vertices in this right. one, and I can't doodle and and talk at the same time. So you know I can't even. What's that about? Yeah. You know, no no multitasking for me. Yeah. Right. Uh, right. So so what pairs well with this theorem? Um, it might be too, it might be on the notes, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, I paired it with Hamilton, the musical, okay. um, and I have mentioned it before, but, but beyond just it being a good soundtrack to listen to with just about everything, um, I thought about, well, certainly there must be like, you know, a deeper connection I can draw between the musical and Hamiltonian graphs. And um, if you listen to the musical, uh, like a motif of it is that, oh, Alexander Hamilton is just like never satisfied in terms of like his goals and ambitions always wants to do more and he's like never at a point where he's like oh i'm i'm good and i don't need to keep going again just just based on the musical um and i kind of thought not that hamiltonian graphs are like personifications of alexander hamilton but that you know <laughs> there is nothing that quite satisfies them at this time or at least as a whole like hamiltonian graphs as a whole so you there is nothing that that would satisfy like oh yeah for sure I am a Hamiltonian graph if these conditions are met. Um, and so that was my connection. And if he wants to go even further, the symbol, like the iconic logo of Hamiltonian, or the Hamiltonian graphs of Hamilton the musical, um, there's a star, which is um, isomorphic to a C5, like a, a five cycle of length mm -hmm. five. So um, my pairing, yeah, was Hamilton the musical. Right. I like that. Well, just in case you have not seen it, there is an excellent parody of it that William Rowan Hamilton of the, the Alexander Hamilton song mm. um, done by, I, I'm forgetting the name of the YouTube channel. I think it's it's run by a guy called Tim Blaze uh, or Blaze, B-L-A-I-S. So yeah, check that out. I was actually, I was trying to write a parody. I just would always get in my head that William Rowan Hamilton um, that is so funny. But, oh, okay. And then I discovered some other person did it already. But they've got a bunch of people like coming in, and they've got like Emmy Nerd, someone playing Emmy Nerder, and ever uh, a few other uh, like math contemporaries. So yes, definitely check that out. We'll include a link to that in the show notes. So, <laughs> right. Yes, excellent. Very we're, cool. we're doing great here. Yep. So Who's thank next? you, Holly, uh, Bryce Van Ross. Welcome to this podcast. Hi, thanks for uh, having me. Um, excited to be here. Um, I guess I'll introduce myself. Um, yes, please do. <laughs> my name's Bryce. Um, come tomorrow, I'll be a master's graduate in math from Cal State LA. So pretty mm -hmm. excited about that. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Um, yeah, so the theorem today, I like learning a lot and learning new things so in the process of choosing a theorem I was like find something new um, I found the Hales Jewett theorem I believe that's how it's pronounced um, the general idea is it's a combinatorial theorem usually applied to game theory and um, you start off with two positive integers uh, n and c so n would correspond to, for example, like a grid, right? Like how many columns or how many rows you have in a grid. And C would correspond to like the amount of players uh, alternating in some game. So the Hales-Jewlett theorem states that um, for any two uh, integers, positive integers, and in C, uh, there will exist some 
uh, h-dimensional cube corresponding to that n c. So by cube, I mean like an n by n by n by n h many times uh, grid. Um, now, more than that, that theorem says that corresponding to that cube, uh, there has to exist some uh, at least one row, column, or diagonal that is all of the same color, uh, which is pretty impressive. Hmm. Yeah. And um, a great way to conceptualize that is, for example, like generalizing the notion of like tic-tac-toe, um, where you have a bunch of like tic-tac-toe grids as faces of some very big cube. Mm -hmm. uh, this theorem tells us that at some point, you're going to find a very long line <laughs> that's either a row, a column, or a diagonal where someone wins, guaranteeing that also someone loses. So mm. uh, that's the theorem I picked. Wow, okay. Yeah, so what, what kind of, so you you gave the example of tic-tac-toe. I yeah. must admit, I'm fairly ignorant in game theory. Yeah, it's like, a weakness for I, me too. I yeah. sort of get, I, I like the part where you're like, oh, you've got a, an n-dimensional or h-dimensional cube and stuff. I, I, the part where it's actually the games, I, I that's why I don't know that much about game theory. It's yeah. like, oh, I'm a little bored by by that kind of thing. So so what other kind of games can um, can can show up in this? Yeah, I'm also unfamiliar with game theory. Never even like read a book on game theory or taken a course. But from my understanding, like you could extend it towards notions of familiar games like Connect Four, any turn-based game, um, okay. such that it requires somebody satisfying a line of something of the same color. Okay, yeah. and I I know game theorists always have these super tricksy ways of like. Oh yeah, that a chess game you can just make into this, or you know, Nim you can represent by this, or right. you know, any any game you want, whether it's like a real game like chess or a math game like Nim. You know, sorry, yeah. hashtag not all math games. Or something. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. And so you you just kind of stumbled on this theorem in a some sort of curiosity rabbit hole. Lots of like Googling at 2 a.m. and mm -hmm. waking yeah. at 2 a.m. Yeah, that's what, happens. that's what happens. That's what happens. This sort of reminds me of Sperner's lemma, right? Where you, you try to, if you're coloring the vertices, Is that the cube? Yeah, or, yeah. You start coloring vertices, then, then you have to get a triangle with all the same color vertices. It's, uh, I wonder if it's sort of related to that in some way. Or maybe, I mean, I'm a topologist. I'm always trying to think of ways to just turn this into a topology question. And it, 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 it feels like it should be one. But anyway, yeah. All right. So this is a good theorem. What, what pairs with it well? Yeah. So I was trying to think of something where audiences can very much relate to. I'm a big fan of games and, and media. And I think several people in the world last year watched the show Squid Game. And season two is upcoming, so Squid Game is my pairing. Um, the reason why it's my pairing is not just because games in the title there, but also because for those familiar having seen like season one, um, at certain points in the game, I think it was with marbles or something. They were like, "Oh, uh, make your own game using these marbles," and I was like, "If I were to like." change up and impose my own ideas of season two what if like a player is like they get to choose a game 
any game and make it and compete against any number of players. Uh, I think that the Hell's Cuid Theorem is like ideal because everyone would be intimidated by a giant cube of tic-tac-toe. <laughs> <laughs> but if you know the theorem, then technically you have an advantage because you know, hey, someone's got to win and ideally it's you. Right. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Okay. I must admit, I am too much of a weenie to watch Squid Games. Yeah, I never watched it either. <laughs> I, yeah, I, from, just from the, even the, the SNL sketch, sketch that was based on Squid Games, I was like, nope not gonna watch that yeah. one it looks too scary for me yeah um, yeah my yeah. wife really doesn't like anything violent so we're we're like, <laughs> like we're watching a couple of things right now that that there's there is some violence and she has to you know look away it's just really really pretty rough so yeah but i know it's very popular so anyway yes all right i think our our, our very brave listeners i think will that's right enjoy that period that's right okay well, excellent thank you. Oh, oh, and, and Bryce, I know that you wanted to share um, a an exhibit that you've got up right now. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I really value, uh, for example, like the themes of this podcast to give opportunity for people of any background to like get a different perspective of math. And I like that for a variety of topics within STEM. Uh, so I work as a library archivist at Cal State LA, and I'm developing a STEM exhibit for um, all faculty, students, et cetera, to just visit and change their minds. So there's going to be interesting math-related artifacts as well as um, like just unconventional things. You're going to see like dinosaur bones and whatnot. Um, and it will be uh, debuting uh, in the fall. So just wanted to give a hype for anyone interested. They could um, reach out to Cal State LA Special Collections and Archives to find out more, and it'll be open for everyone. Awesome. Right. Yeah, I hope our LA-based listeners will check that out. That sounds very cool. Okay. Thank well, you. Alvin? Alvin, uh, would you like... Alvin Liu, would you like to join us? Sorry, I don't want to... <laughs> don't want to introduce people differently. Uh, yes, please uh, introduce yourself and let us know about your favorite theorem. Yeah, hello everyone. I'm very glad to be here. Uh, I'm Alvin. Um, I'm currently a third year computer science major and math minor. Um, not directly just in math, but I've been doing uh, machine learning research and kind of being at the intersection of two different uh, subjects there. Mm -hmm. And so today I'd like to share uh, not so much a theorem, but a uh, I guess the, the actual theorem is that the cardinality of the real numbers is greater than the cardinality of the natural numbers. Mm -hmm. And specifically, I really, really enjoyed the proof of Cantor's diagonalization. It's classic. And so, <laughs> I don't know, has anyone played the, the game in elementary school where each person is trying to come up with a bigger number? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then someone would play the trump card of infinity, you know. Right. Infinity plus one. But I think what people don't realize is that there's actually different levels of infinity. Right. And I remember watching a TED Talk video back in middle school, and my mind was so blown mm -hmm. by the fact that there could be an infinity greater than a different one. And so having taken a more formal class last semester uh, talking about Cantor's diagonalization, I think it's such a beautiful proof because it's so easy for even non-math majors to understand. Mm -hmm. And it just goes something like, you suppose you can list everything out so that you can match each natural number to a real number. And what you'll find is that the real number you can write out mm -hmm. as 
an infinite decimal, so a number with infinite decimal places. And so you just write all of them out, you pair each of them up, and what you end up doing is you take uh, one of the digits from every single real number, and then you create a new number based on that by changing up all the digits, and you'll find that you'll find a contradiction that you actually didn't list out that number. Right. And so just that very simple idea there leads to actually quite a few paradoxes. I think there's like a, a Hilbert Hotel paradox, if anyone's heard of that, and some mm -hmm. other ones. Um, but something so simple like that, just one idea, and it opens the, the kind of, you know, mathematics world where there's different levels of infinity. And for, for a normal person who's not too involved in math, I think it's actually very interesting that, that it's accessible. It's just a, a simple idea that anyone can go ahead and check out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's such a, a great one. And I remember that is the one when I was in, uh, in undergrad, when I saw that and finally understood it, it was it was one of those like mind blown kind of mm -hmm. moments for mm -hmm. me, a very, very special place in my heart. Yeah, yeah. And then you learn all these other weird things like, you know, like the Cantor set is also uncountable. It's kind of the same argument. And uh, yeah, it, 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 it definitely blows blows everyone's mind the first time and the second time sometimes too. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I'll just think about it every once in a while and be like, is that really true? Do I, do I just need to add that number to the list and then I'll, I'll fix everything? Well, I don't know. You know <laughs> well, yeah, and it doesn't. You can, you can prove that too. But, you know, I, I saw some Twitter thread the other day though, where someone was trying to argue that there are some models out there where, where the reels are countable, you know, and like you can, you can, you can change your rules and get different answers, but I, I don't like that. I, I like my real numbers to be what I think they are, right? Although yeah. who knows what they are really. Anyway. Yes. All right. So what, what is your pairing for us? Yeah. So I was really actually thinking quite hard about how to match some concept of infinity with real life. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think some people might have heard the, the analogy of like you put a box in a box in a box or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that's actually very hard to actually even imagine, right? Because in real life, you could never actually make an infinitely small box. Uh, it's not practical. Theoretically, it's possible. But so what I was thinking is I'd pull the uh, old mathematician trick and pair it with alphabets. And because mathematicians, <laughs> every time we, we struggle to, to match numbers to something, we just slap a variable. You know, we, we take the, the Greek alphabet, we take everything. Um, and in terms of uncountable and countable infinities, we actually take uh, from the Hebrew alphabet, right? The uh, Aleph and the uh, Beth. Mm -hmm. um, characters to represent the two two different sets. And so I decided, you know, by pairing it with uh, different languages, I figure if we ever do come up with you know, infinitely or, or more more uh, discoveries like that, we can just slap another letter on it and uh, hope it pairs up and uh, we'll have a new method of explaining something uh, without without the numbers, but with a, a more general you know, letter from the from a random alphabet. I like that. I and, do too. Yeah, That's I've, good. yeah, I've seen, uh, you know, the Latin alphabet, the Greek, Hebrew, and Cyrillic. Mm -hmm. um, I, but yeah, we need to just the next time one of you comes up with with some new concept that just need, you know, Greek letters are not sufficient for the amazement of this. We need to start using other alphabets. Oh, yeah. How about like those, those Southeast Asian ones, like the, the, like the Thai alphabet? Yeah. It's really beautiful and, and, and completely different, right? We could, we yeah. could start doing we that. Yeah, we got a lot of options. We do, so, yeah. Yeah. 
That's new goal. I like it. Thank okay. you, Alvin. Very good. Okay, next up we have Judith Landau. Judith, please tell us about yourself and share your favorite theorem. Well, thank you for having me. Um, my name's Judith Landau. Thank you for introducing me. I'm also um, graduating as an undergrad in math tomorrow. Congratulations. And Thank you. And I'll be moving on to actually uh, interdisciplinary biology program. Um, it's a PhD program. And I've been doing some uh, research modeling um, biological systems. So my favorite theorem is actually the fundamental theorem of Markov chains, mm -hmm. um, which is from the field of probability theory and statistics. And I'm very interested in Markov chains because they are a way of modeling systems based off of probability instead of deterministically. So instead of saying, we know what's going to happen next, we're going to say it's based off of probability. Mm -hmm. um, and Markov chains can be represented by a directed graph. So a set of vertices with edges that are um, directed pointing to you know a specific vertice in one direction or the other the outgoing vertice uh, um, um, edges of each vertex are actually the um that's the probability sorry the random variable associated with that vertex so each vertex has its own random variable its own probability distribution that tells you how likely you are to go to any other vertex and so in a very simple weather model for down here in southern california where we could only might only consider sunny rainy and cloudy days no snowy days those mm -hmm. could be our three vertices our three states and um we could talk about the probability of moving between them from day to day. And so the fundamental theorem of Markov chains can be stated in many different ways. There are long ways and short ways to state the theorem, but a simple way to state it is that an aperiodic irreducible Markov chain has a stationary distribution. Mm -hmm. So an aperiodic Markov chain for our sunny, rainy, cloudy model would basically uh, mean that the chain is set up so that there is no regular period for any of those states. So there's no regular period between the sunny days, cloudy days, or rainy days. Mm -hmm. And the um, irreducibility just means that there is some path directed path obviously between every vertex in that directed graph for this markov chain so you're able to reach every vertex from any other in some number of steps mm -hmm. and um, the stationary distribution um, basically for the markov chain if i were to give you a more um a longer version of the theorem um, that the longer version of the theorem says that the stationary distribution for the Markov chain is actually the long term probabilities of ending up on any given state. Mm -hmm. So in this, uh, my example, sunny, rainy and cloudy. And um, my my pairing, if I can move on to that, yeah, go ahead, do um, it. Yeah. is actually in biology. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of a pun because um, um, my pairing is 
proteins. Proteins are actually chains themselves. They're chains of amino acids. And so since there's this dependency going on in Markov chains, where the next day's weather is dependent on today's weather, and that's a really um, characteristic idea in Markov chains is that there's this dependency from one state to the next. Um, proteins, the order of those amino acids is dependent on a gene because genes mm -hmm. are what code for proteins. Okay. That, I love that pairing. That's excellent. Thank you. Yep. Yes, that's very nice. It, it kind of makes me wonder, like, if, you know, I do not know anything about biology. The last biology class I took was in probably you weren't born yet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, it, it makes me wonder, like, are there things where, like, it's a little more likely that you'll have, like, a tryptophan after a lysine than, mm. you know, mm -hmm. I... Yes, we actually study that in bioinformatics heavily. Oh, um, cool. What um, amino acids are more likely to be next to each other and, and things like that. I never thought about that, but it's kind of like, of course, there's going to be some sort of tendency because it would be extremely improbable that it would all be exactly equal all the time. Right. So, right. And yeah. According to our theories in biology, it's all related to the structure of that protein and how that structure will affect the function of the protein. Mm -hmm. And that's why things, um, why proteins evolve as they do. That is so cool. That well, is, thank you for sharing that excellent. theorem and that biology connection. And I'm so glad that you are going on to study this more. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, good luck. Thank you, me too. <laughs> all right. Next up, we've got Kevin Alfaro. So yes, welcome. Please let us know about yourself. Are you, I see that you've got the Golden Gate Bridge behind you in your Zoom background. Are you from the Bay Area? No, just it's my favorite bridge. Okay. It, it is a good bridge. I mean, I've stood in that spot yeah. and taken that picture. I think I think a lot of us have, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Well, Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm Kevin, and I'm majoring in math at Cal, Cal State Los Angeles. And for my theorem, it's actually Archimedes' theorem on his approximation of pi. So I'm going to be mm -hmm. taking us back a couple of thousand nice. years. Yeah, okay. I love it. I, <laughs> love, it. Yep. I love the variety. Yep. Thank you. Yeah, I'm a big daydreamer, so this is all something that I could daydream about all day. <laughs> and so what he was trying to do, he was trying to approximate pi, and what he did was since it's it's uh it's included using a circle he placed the hexagon inside the circle and this hexagon had already included the radius of the circle as one of its sides mm -hmm. and this is because the hexagon is made of six equilateral triangles so each side ends up being the same and each side also corresponds to the radius so he uses this to calculate the the circumference of the hexagon and since it's inside the circle, he knows it has to be smaller than the circumference of the circle. So he he knows that the circumference of the hexagon is six r, since mm -hmm. it's six um, six radiuses each each part of the triangles. So he already has a bound on on that. He knows that it has to be greater than six r. So now what he does is a series of calculations to try to get a bounce. He tries to squeeze pi. Um, in two hexagons, in a hexagon uh, outside of the circle and a hexagon inside of the circle. Mm -hmm. So he knows that 
that circle has to be between these two hexagons. But the way he does it is so, is so laborious. He does, uh, <laughs> yeah, so for the for each of these, so he starts with the first hexagon, right? And it's a six piece hexagon. So he has to build that up each time. He has to create a longer hexagon that corresponds to the actual circle. So he has to cut up each arc in half mm -hmm. and he, he does that. So he cuts every one in half and he creates a midpoint. So he has to do the Pythagorean theorem for each one. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so he's just doing it like every day. So if you guys have like a couple of days of free time, you guys could do this yourself too. <laughs> I know, and, yeah. And he didn't have algebra either, right? I mean, he, he didn't actually have algebra. So he was, and, and these numbers didn't even exist to him, like square root of two or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's amazing. Yeah. And I'm trying to remember is the, the last level, was it like a 96 gone or a, a polygon with 96 sides or a hundred yeah. something sides. I think that's how far he got. Yeah. 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 And it's just like, I, I immediately give up on hearing that. <laughs> and I've got a little calculator in my phone that I carry in my pocket all the time. And like, I'm just like, I've noped right out of doing that. <laughs> but yeah, it's, yeah. it's amazing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, uh, and it, is that called the method of exhaustion, which I think is perfectly named um, so yeah <laughs> yeah. Just like, yeah yeah, it, yeah it is, it's so amazing to think about thousands of years ago the people like like Archimedes and other people like having having the wherewithal and the the persistence to go through and be like well I don't have a calculator and I don't know what pi is yet so What's I guess I'm just gonna uh <laughs> you know, figure out the length of this 96-sided <laughs> polygon. I don't have anything to do for the next week. So so uh, where did you first encounter this uh, theorem or, or this idea? I actually got this from a really great book. It's called Infinite Powers by, I think, Stephen Shrogans. Mm -hmm. Yep. So I recommend reading that book, too, to anyone oh, nice. listening. It's a really yep. great book. It is good. Yeah. 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 And so, yes, what is your pairing with Archimedes' uh, exhaustive proof of, or, or, or exhaustive approximation of pi? Well, my, my pairing is actually more of an abstract pairing. Okay. And it's a, more of an idea because I think around the context of math around this, this time too, and the context is always changing. And around this time, it was, it was more like a spiritual level mm. of math, like people were more into it and they were, they weren't really, well, yeah, it was more spiritual. So, and then if we connect it to now and how advanced math is, and we know what Archimedes was doing since the, the he can never find out the numerical value of pi since it's an irrational number and he couldn't do that back then. But he still knew that it was between two, two, uh, two fractions between three plus 10 over 71 and three plus 10 over 72, I believe. Mm -hmm. And that's all he needed to know. So he knew that it was between two numbers, but he can never really find out what exactly this number was. And I think that really speaks a lot about what math is or what uh, people do uh, mm -hmm. in terms of knowing what we don't know. So in this time he knew what we don't know. Oh, he knew that he didn't know, which is mm -hmm. a lot what, what's happening on today. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just a cycle of what we do for math or for anything really. We try to get to the point where we know that we don't know and then we're done. <laughs> Yeah, well, I like that. that. That can be such a difficult part of, of basically anything in life. Sure. You know, this whole pandemic thing we've been living through, like knowing what we do and don't know about 
what's happening with that has mm -hmm. been such a challenge. It's like, oh, that really affects my life, um, you know, in a, in a way that maybe knowing the exact value of pi doesn't. Right. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's like so hard. And sometimes you think you know what you know, what, what you don't know, and, and you don't realize what you don't know. So yeah, I, I like that kind of yeah, no. <laughs> from the very concrete, like polygons to this sort of abstract. Thank you, Kevin. Yep. Thank you. That's a good All one. right. Next up, welcome to the show, Francisco Leon. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and share your favorite theorem? Yeah, thank you for the welcome. Uh, tomorrow, along with Bryce, I'm graduating from here at CalCLA through the master's program. So I'm really excited about that. Congratulations. Uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, today I want to mention a theorem. When I was asked what's my favorite theorem, at the time I really had one uh, on mine from my topology class. Uh, I'll state the theorem now. It says the topological space is regular if and only if for every element in the set and open set contain the element that there exists another open set that also contains the element but whose closure is in the first mentioned set. So maybe to, to label some of this to get a better mm -hmm. visualization. Um, so we have some elements, say P, and then say some open set that contains it U. Mm -hmm. Now in between P and U, uh, this alternate characterization of regularity says that there's gonna have to exist another open set V that also contains P inside of U, whose closure is also inside of U. So it kind of goes yep. like maybe nested, you know, right? P, V, closure, V, and then U. Yep. And that's equivalent for regularity and you know at first you know this was a homework assignment from the class mm -hmm. and one of the key tools to do this problem is to understand that you know if you illustrate an element in an open set say you draw it right you just kind of draw a little point p and a dash to circle around the open set that's going to be equivalent to having p outside that complement so you could draw p outside of a box and the box just kind of know that you know since the complement of open set is going to be closed so that's why it's really represented as a box to be able to comfortably go between those two perspectives of the same situation i found difficulty at the time and so mm -hmm. I, you know i fostered appreciation for this theorem because it made me um, kind of resolve that difficulty so um it led me to some trains of thoughts that were really interesting for me at the time and you know it's been a while since a theorem held my attention, held my attention for so long. So just kind of share some of the lines of thoughts I was having when working through this exercise was, okay, I was like, how do I go from being an element in this open set to being outside its complement? I started imagining myself inside of a room just as the element would be inside the open set. And I'm like, how do I push the walls of this room so that suddenly the outside is contained inside these walls, right? Because you want to go from being inside the open set to being outside the complement. So how can I move this, you know, this boundary so that mm -hmm. the outside's mm -hmm. contained? I feel like I couldn't do it. I look outside, I know the universe <laughs> is huge. How can I push the walls of this room to contain everything else outside and suddenly be the one outside? So I had great difficulty. And then, you know, as I would think about this problem and look outside, I'd see the window. And then I realized that, you know, the illustration of the element inside the open set you know, when you have that point P and those dashed lines around it, those dashed lines aren't necessarily representative of a border. It's really representative of a window because what you do at that illustration 
is you look at what's within those dashed lines to see the elements. So you're really looking into the set to see what's inside of it. So what I really needed was a window in this room for me to be able to understand the outside. So now if I reimagine the situation, I'm in a room which is representative of the open set and there's some element in here. What I need is a window so that I can see what's on the outside. And then if I change my perspective, if I pass through the window and then turn back around, then I see through the window the element inside the room and now I have the outside perspective that I wanted. So now I see the element inside the room. So now I'm seeing the complement on the open set. And that really helped me, you know, do that change of perspective from being inside the open set to being outside the complement, which is a closed set. And then I was able to do the exercise pretty straightforwardly, but I was really struggling for that. And, you know, I never really think about theorems as visually as I do, as I just described. So that's why I really appreciate this theorem. That's why it's one of my current favorites. Hmm. So, Excellent. you know, when, when I was an undergrad, uh, you know, I, I was always going to be a math major. Like, I, I, this is what I was always going to do. But, but that class, point set topology, is when I really fell in love. I mean, like, I, I was already planning to go to graduate school. But, but I, uh, my, my, my professor for that, uh, uh, Peter Fletcher, who passed away a couple of years ago, uh, really put me on this path to being a topologist. Like I didn't know what I was going to do until I until I actually hit that. And of course, you know that that flavor of topology is pretty well settled and has been for quite a while. But it's still really, um, still really beautiful to think about these these sort of basic properties of topological spaces. And and and, and, I, and I love your visual your visual description of this sort of thing, like regular spaces. You know, I haven't thought about them in a long time, but I think you really nailed it right there. Um, so. That's yeah. very nice. Yeah, and I, I like, I like seeing that little glimpse into how you were thinking this mm -hmm. through, even if that isn't what you wrote down in your proof in the end. Yeah, but it like seeing that so often when we read math, we don't, we don't see those little glimpses of how the person actually thought about it. We see the, the cleaned right. up version that you know is presentable for 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 you know professional company or something. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. but I really like seeing that. So what what is your pairing for this theorem? Oh yeah, so I'm thinking maybe a hot apple pie, just because we typically do if you set it on a windowsill to cool down, and I just figure <laughs> oh, that the sterum yeah. is cooler with a window. I don't. <laughs> That's good. Well, and and yeah, who can argue with a, a nice nice yeah. warm slice of apple That's pie? That's right. It's delicious. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank right. you so much. Thanks for this thank you guys. Yeah. All right. Next up, we have Marlene Enriquez. Marlene, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us about your favorite theorem? Um, yes, so hi, my name is Marlene. Um, my favorite theorem has to be um, the ham sandwich theorem. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes, you've got a you've got a company with Kevin. So in episode zero, we Ellen and Evelyn and I had our favorite theorems. That was mine. Here we go. All right. Yep. <laughs> so yeah, please tell us what you like about it. That's right. Um, well, what I like about it is just, it's kind of like the first time that I encountered like a theorem that really didn't have like an exact answer to mm. how to solve it. Mm -hmm. So it's like an idea of um, basically having a line cut something and like split it into um, equal volumes per se. Mm -hmm. So when I first um, read it I was like oh this sounds cool when I read it some more I was like oh no this is really interesting mm -hmm. and it's actually the the theorem that I used to write 
the, my research paper for my um, senior seminar class mm -hmm. with Dr. Krebs. So the theorem, when I read it, I read it like this. It's like you have a sandwich made out of bread, ham, and another piece of bread. And like they don't have to be exactly aligned mm -hmm. or like even touching each other. Right. But um, there should there should there exist like a line, like a cut, a straight cut that will split the bread ham and the other piece of bread in like equal volumes. Mm -hmm. And then when I saw that, like, wait, you don't really have to like be next to each other or like on top of each other nope. or even <laughs> in the same room as each other. And then <laughs> they right. still <laughs> be cut and split into equal volumes. I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah. I need to read more about this. It's pretty remarkable. This could be like the sloppiest made oh, ham yeah. sandwich ever, right. Right. and it'll still work. Right. We like <laughs> you, you could have this. You could have one slice of bread in in Los Angeles. I have one here in Gainesville, and and the piece of ham could be in in Salt Lake with Evelyn. And there is a. It's a, take a big yeah. knife. There is a big knife <laughs> yes. that can cut them in half. That's right. Where did you first see this serum? Uh, I was actually searching up for a topic for mm -hmm. my paper and I was on um, online Google searching mm -hmm. I, every time at 2 a.m. it always happens and I kind of stumbled <laughs> upon it <laughs> I kind of stumbled upon it and mm -hmm. I think I I saw a YouTube video and I was like oh this is very interesting mm -hmm. then I clicked to another one and I'm like okay this is very interesting mm -hmm. and then I just started searching and searching and reading and yeah. Right. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess this podcast brought to you by the time 2 a.m. That's right. Uh, <laughs> the perfect time to be just finding weird math stuff to learn about. That's right. Yeah. So what yeah. so well, what pairs with the ham sandwich theorem? Well, it's not on the nose, not a ham sandwich. But um <laughs> but actually um when I was typing my paper, I was um in my living room and I have siblings. And I, they were fighting over a chocolate bar. Um, they were saying, oh, like, let's put it, let's split it equally. And they're like, no, you got the bigger piece. or oh, you got the bigger piece. Mm -hmm. And just kind of like the idea of sharing, um, mm -hmm. even when you go out with friends, you split the bill and stuff like that. That kind of just kind of brought it to like, that's kind of like the ham sandwich, but like in like money or mm -hmm. in a chocolate bar, who got the biggest piece. <laughs> Right. That's a hard problem, actually. The, the whole sh the equal division problem is extremely difficult. Yeah. <laughs> As I'm sure you found out with your siblings arguing over a chocolate bar. So. Yeah. <laughs> the answer is, is probably, uh, you know, just giving up all earthly desires. That's right. Yeah. Right. The, the Buddha, Buddhist the, the, the Buddhists understand. Passion. That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Thanks, Marlene. Marlene. Yep. And our, our final guest uh, is Daniel Ar uh, Daniel Argueta, um, thank you for joining us. And please tell us a little bit about yourself and your favorite theorem. Well, uh, thank you, Kevin and Evelyn, for having me. And Evelyn, don't worry, you said my last name correctly. <laughs> um, so I'm also graduating tomorrow. I'm getting my bachelor's in math. Congratulations. Um, yeah, big thing, um, you know, first gen. Mm -hmm. um, so when Dr. Krebs approached me about this, I was like, what am I going to talk about? What's my favorite theorem? And when I was doing research for our capstone class, I actually stumbled across your guys' podcast. 
and um the one i think it was episode 17 with uh dr N N naomi joshi or something like that and it was the mitog leffler theorem and mm -hmm. that theorem was just way too complicated for me <laughs> so like dr krebs helped me you know bring it down a little bit mm -hmm. and i was like and i stumbled across the infinite product convergence theorem Okay. And I was like, okay, maybe that's what I'm going to talk about. I wrote a whole paper on that. Mm -hmm. And then I, I thought about it and I was like, you know what? That's not my favorite theorem. So I started doing some Googling <laughs> and I came across the headline um, <laughs> the, that a theorem shook math to its core. So maybe that might give you guys some ideas as to where I'm going to go. And I'm actually doing, I'm going to talk about Kurt, um, Gerdel's, um, incompleteness there oh yeah okay. all right yeah this is, so, this is a great way I, I i just like to say of all the however many thousands of possibilities i like the that at least that this one was at the end to sort of be like okay we talked about all this math that we can do now let's finish it off with oh yeah we can't do math that's probably not the best <laughs> summary of the incompleteness theorem so why don't you tell us about the incompleteness theorem um, well, what Gerdo pretty much um, set out to prove, everybody at the time was trying to prove that math is perfect. And they were mm -hmm. trying to say, hey, like math is perfect. They were trying to find like this theory of everything. And Gerdo's all like, mm, I don't know about that. Like, <laughs> you know. And so pretty much what he, what his proof did and like not to get super technical or anything was he showed that in any formal system um, there are certain true statements about the system that can not be proven by said system. Mm -hmm. So a way to think of this is our classic logical problems with the knights and the knaves. Um, in this case, you only need the knight where you have a knight in shining armor who can only tell you the truth. Um, but so you ask, so you ask yourself, what is a sentence that this knight cannot say? if he can only tell the truth and while that sentence is i cannot say that sentence you know because mm -hmm. if he can say the sentence then it's true but if he can't say the sentence then you know it's not going to yeah. work out mm -hmm. and he's mm -hmm. contradicting himself so um i just really like this theorem because to me um you know we usually tend to think of math as perfect it's a lot of people call it the universal language because math across everywhere is is perfect but to me it's super interesting that the fact that we don't know everything about it and we will never know anything about everything about it right. so that's why i really like this theorem and um it actually brings me to my pairing which is our um i know usually you guys do food on the on the podcast but in this case my pairing is our final frontier um which is space yeah and i think i think it's super it, it coincides with it because you know we'll we're gonna always keep discovering more and more about space as our technology advances but at the same time our universe is ever expanding so we will we ever completely know everything about space you know so there's so much to there's so much to learn and discover and the same can be said for math and that's my favorite theorem excellent awesome. i i love that yeah and it, it's almost like okay yeah math is is like perfect and you could do everything just don't look too hard right. <laughs> what is incompleteness theorem stuff is doing like oh yeah you think you could do calculus just you know don't, don't look too hard <laughs> right right 
Yeah. Okay. Well, this is that's everybody. So All right. fun. I'm I'm so optimistic about the future of I math am too. right now. Yeah, this is um, good. And biology yes. and whatever and else. And machine learning and uh, yeah, um, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck to all of you um, in your next steps. And it's it's so appropriate that we got to do this right before many of you are graduating and, Mm -hmm. you know, taking those next steps. So thank you so much for sharing part of your your Monday morning with us. Yeah. Um, And and thanks to to your professor, uh, uh, Mike, for for reaching out to us and and and. making this happen so yeah well thank you for hosting everybody this is great yeah yes and i don't know if you all want to unmute and do like a like goodbye i don't i don't know how do you end a podcast <laughs> with with 12 people look i, I did multiplication is there, is there like a, a csula break. kind of cheer like you know i'm at the university of florida so it'd be like a go gators kind of thing is there is <laughs> They're all looking at me like, no, we don't. Do that. Yeah, uh, math majors <laughs> might not be the best choice for know, for you know knowing all the sports that you not to invoke any stereotypes. But. Hey, I, I, I know every word of the Virginia Tech fight song, so well, <laughs> may not be universal. Maybe not. Okay. All right. Well, thanks everyone. You're unmuted. Yeah. Say 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 goodbye or something. Say, uh, thank, yeah, you guys thank you. Thank you. It was fun. Long is great. <laughs> Thanks for listening to My Favorite Theorem, hosted by Kevin Knudsen and Evelyn Lee. The music you're hearing is a piece called Fractalia, a percussion quartet performed by four high school students from Gainesville, Florida. They are Blake Crawford, Gus Knudsen, Del Mitchell, and Bao Chan Wen. You can find more information about the mathematicians and theorems featured in this podcast, along with other delightful mathematical treats, at Kevin's website, kpknudsen.com and Evelyn's blog, Roots of Unity, on the Scientific American Blog Network. We love to hear from our listeners, so please drop us a line at myfavoritetheorem at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Kevin's handle on Twitter is at nivicnazdunk, that's Kevin spelled backwards, followed by Knudsen spelled backwards, and Evelyn's is at Evelyn J. Lamb. The show itself also has a Twitter feed. The handle is M-Y-F-A-V-E-T-H-M. That's at myfavoritetheorem. Join us next time to learn another fascinating piece of mathematics.